0: women have been unempowered around birth. Since 1950s, most women had their babies in the hospital. And with that, most people had, uh, at least until the mid 60s were knocked out. So they didn't even experience what birth was. And Mm -hmm. then about that point, they started to really discourage breastfeeding too. And so there was just, I believe people are I think we see the repercussions of a disconnected culture.
1: Welcome to the Heart of the Soul podcast. My name is Amana and I'm your host. I am a wild earth mama living in the Pacific Northwest with my soul flame and our two earthside wildlings. On this podcast, I share personal heartfelt stories and insights coming from my unique lens as well as conversations with other amazing women in my web of life who have incredible wisdom and stories to share. I have lived most of my life afraid of speaking my truth. Creating this podcast is my path to healing this wound as I breathe life back into the ancient ritual of storytelling. I believe that there is more that unites us than divides us. Birth and death are always a part of our human experience. My hope is for these soulful, heartfelt stories to remind you what it means to be wild, human and alive so that you may cherish your unique journey of human and that you may find the courage to share your voice and express the words you feel deep in your heart and soul. Please join me in the creation of the Heart of the Soul community as together we build sisterhood and breathe life back into storytelling Giving each other the sacred space to be heard. Hi, welcome to the Heart of the Soul podcast. I'm here today with Tammy. I have known her for about six years. She has been a midwife, a friend, a mentor, um, a supportive person in my life. I'm so grateful that. Um, she's been here with me along this path and is now my neighbor even, uh, she's going to talk today about her career as a midwife, um, her path into motherhood, as well as some other wonderful things. She has much wisdom to share. Would you mind telling us a little bit about you and where you're at in your life right now? And, um, yeah, we'll start there.
0: Well, I am just finishing up my 60th season or not season 60th year, which is a end of a season. And um, I like Amana said, I live four doors down and consider it a real blessing to have Amana as a neighbor. We have a great neighborhood. Um, I'm a mom of four and I they're all in their 30s. And Uh, One is almost 40. So that seems quite amazing. And I have 15 grandkids. And they range from almost two to uh, 16.
1: Wonderful. Um, Would you share a little bit about um, your journey into motherhood? Did you always know you wanted to be a mom? Um, What was that like for you?
0: You know, I, I babysat a lot growing up and I liked little kids and I thought I always would want to have some, um, but I planned no sooner than I um, was 25. I didn't want to have kids before then. I wanted to finish school and uh, start my career. Uh, my mom hadn't really um, seemed like she wanted to have kids. She talked a lot about how I, inter- I was the oldest, interrupted her college career. And in those days, and I was born in 1960, there weren't a whole lot of options. Um, So my mom um, stayed home until we were older and then she went back to school, finished school and started working. So her input was always that I should be this career person. And I had really, um, I agreed with that. And yet part of me really, tugged toward, you know, I was, my heart was tugged towards children. And then when I got married, when I was 19, so really young, and uh, I felt ready to have kids pretty soon. And so I had my first baby when I was 21. Um, Prior to that, I had had very little experience around birth. The only person I had seen pregnant and who had a baby where I went to the hospital, um, and kind of had some visual of the experience was was my aunt and that was a real turnoff to me it was um she was drugged up when i saw her on the gurney going into the delivery room and she talked she talked nonsense and uh, when she was pregnant she would just like flip her shirt up and show her belly with stretch marks and there was just no there was nothing um uplifting about it. It was always kind of a negative, like being pregnant Mm
1: -hmm. was kind
0: of ugly. Having a baby, by my estimation, looked pretty horrid. And so even though, so I think that's part of why I said I didn't want to have any babies before I was 25. Is like, I need some time to be able to cope with that. But when I was, um, I can't remember if I was pregnant or right before I got pregnant with my oldest, I met a woman who had had a baby with a midwife in Spokane. And she had had one home birth and had had her fourth baby in the hospital just for money reasons, like in those days. If you did it within like four hours, you went in, had your baby and left, you could do it for like 400 bucks. So it was way, was way cheaper. (laughs) So I never was with her or around her when she had her baby at home, but she told me about it and it was really intriguing. And so I sought that out when I first was pregnant with my oldest. At that point, I had never heard of midwives, um, had never had any curiosity about any you know I just had never been exposed I was truly a blank slate in that Mm -hmm. regard but my midwife was um one of a couple here in Spokane that a, a doctor had women were starting to have home births without being attended and you know attended meaning anybody who the doctor considered as um qualified Uh, so he got this this nurse midwife that worked with his office to do out of hospital births and then she she and another midwife opened a birth center on the south hill and that's where I met up with her and she was a nun and so we were her family and she and, and it was it was very nurturing for me at the time I think today I probably would have chosen a different midwife um just because as I look back on it and re-met her years later she was not as nurturing um like wanting to hug and that um as I had become and so anyway she was super super great person, very much mentor as I proceeded to um, become a La League leader. And then as I pursued midwifery, she would contact me periodically and just tell me how proud she was of me. And she was very motherly towards me in ways um, that my mom hadn't been, because, you know, in my family, what I was doing was really Um, suspect at
1: best. Yeah. What was the story that you heard from your mom about your own birth? Did she?
0: Yeah. 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 So she she had um, she played chess while she was in labor and she didn't go in until late. So, you know, kudos to her. Uh, She went in in the evening and had me at just about 11. And in those days they knocked everybody, most everybody out. So she was um, anesthetized and I was born. I kind of sometimes wonder if maybe I was um, forceps delivery, just sometimes looking at bones in my head. And um, she didn't know she didn't know any particulars about it, but in those days, you were put in the hospital nursery.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, she breastfed me for a month. I was the only one in our family. She did uh, just because she was poor, but she didn't know her doctor didn't encourage it. She didn't know anybody who did. And so when she just still kept leaking milk at a month, she had stopped, um, though she had regrets about that. When I had my kids, she expressed, oh, I, you know, I could have kept going and that would have been nice so at uh one week you'd be in the hospital then she took us home and she said it took her a week of having us home before as i had a couple siblings um before she felt like we were hers so you know as a so and you were brought from the nursery to see her just for feedings Mm -hmm. and they said i was a very beautiful and good baby which kind of I always just kind of stuff it, you know. So I would, I probably wasn't a screamer. I just mm-hmm. was like, oh, I'm alone. I'll just be quiet and wish someone was here. Um, so that has kind of also followed me through my life. And uh, anyway, she took us, took me home and uh, did her very best.
1: Yes. Uh, so leading into your first birth, can you share with us a little bit more about what that was like, how labor started? How yeah. that experience was for you having not like witnessed many, you know, births or I don't know how much you knew about the process at that time. And my midwife's the birth
0: center was pretty good at educating, but in those days it was like a film. So you'd go to your birth class and they'd show. A few films, and and that was useful. My midwife had a lot of books, and I like to read, so I would just spend a lot of time uh, reading about. That's where I learned about nutrition, and um, so she didn't she didn't talk a lot about birth, but I was able to read about it. There was no internet in Mm -hmm. those days; you know, it was really books was kind of it or word of mouth, and there Mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of word of mouth about it. So um, I had uh, varicose veins and so spent a, a fair amount of time at the end of pregnancy with my legs elevated in a lazy boy recliner. Well, so everybody who understands posterior labors could see how that would have been my experience and But my midwife didn't talk about that so I had started to have regular contractions on a Friday and we came we lived in Ritzville and we came to Spokane um, and stayed at my parents thinking you know of course birth was going to be imminent (laughs) and uh, four days later uh, I finally did have her but I had continual contractions from that Friday night till Tuesday afternoon when I had wow. it but I never dilated past 3 until Tuesday. So I would go in once or twice a day to the birth center they'd check me and they'd say yeah no. And, but but in those days there wasn't a lot of discussion about positioning. Nobody said go for a walk, crawl on your hands and knees, all of the things that i might suggest to someone today um so i was really just in the dark as to what was going on my body felt like it was uh not cooperating and i didn't understand why and clearly the people around me were worried so i felt that too Mm -hmm. though the midwives weren't worried they just didn't give me any real information so on Tuesday morning, when I went in and I said, Went to the midwives, they said, You're still three. I've been having all these contractions. I hadn't slept. You know, I had been timing them for days and you know, it was just kind of a mess at that point. I went home and my dad met me outside and he was like, How are you? And I just was like, I'm never going to have this baby. And I just started crying and he just walked away. <laughs> he had nothing to offer. So I went in, they gave me a tranquilizer because my, they had off said, you should have something to drink, some alcohol, a smooth muscle relaxer, you'll go to sleep. And um, my parents didn't drink. So I didn't have access to any alcohol. So I, um they gave me this tranquilizer. I went to sleep and I so that would have been like 10 I woke up at noon my water broke and from and then I had her at four so it was really fast once she rotated once I relaxed enough and she rotated Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I got up actually I woke up screaming so they I'm sure everyone thought I was dying but my mom's Um, had gotten a new mattress for the bed and I was screaming because oh my god I have just leaked all of this fluid all over your new mattress sorry (laughs) so I took a shower and it was the contractions got harder and we went in and pushed not that long maybe a half hour I think and I had a nine pound one ounce speedy girl
1: Amazing.
0: Yeah, with the do you remember Claire makeup mirrors? Do you ever? They're like square with lights around them. That was uh-huh. the mirror they you could uh, they set up for
1: you to watch so you baby could. be born. Yeah. yeah. And did you find? <laughs> did you enjoy watching? Did you watch? I know some of no. are mirrors and you don't want to look. So I did yeah. not
0: no i was the pushing for me was super intense which is i look back at my chart is probably because the pushing second stage went really fast Mm -hmm. and there was nobody to say hey you know look in my eyes be present you know i didn't and i was used to dissociation for um as a good coping tool so i just used that and i i was pretty checked out because Mm -hmm. that was just my way of coping with things yeah. But I liked her a lot when she came out.
1: Yeah. What well, was, yeah, postpartum like for you and that connection? And
0: it was great. She went up on my chest. I knew no one. I, I mean, I knew some people at church who nursed their babies, but there was no one with good breastfeeding information, really. You know, there was barely La League. And I had gone to a La League meeting before I had her. Um, but anyway, I, I really knew nothing, but she just was up on my chest and I was 21 and nature took its course. She latched on. Nursing was great. So mm-hmm. I had no trouble ever.
1: Did you have community support after, during your postpartum? Did people help feed you or what was that like that time period for you?
0: My mom came, we went back. Well, I went to my sister-in-law's for like four days I think was what the midwife required so she could come and see me without she wouldn't drive to where we lived um so that was a little weird because I was in somebody else's house um Mm -hmm. so I ate fine but it just was awkward you know you were waking people up if the baby cried and in those days nobody ever talked about sleeping with your baby you know, it was always assumed there was a crib and I put the baby in the crib, but that didn't really work. She'd cry. And
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, so there was that confusion. But once I got home and my mom came and um, fixed food and sewed her a new dress and, and it was just nice having my mom there. But my mom didn't have a whole lot of information either. She was not, she was good emotional, physical support in that her presence was comforting. But um, I didn't really have anybody to, the internet would have been useful for me Mm -hmm. because there were just so many unknowns. But I'm, you know, when you're you're 21, you're used and you've been in college, you're kind of used to just sitting around. So (laughs) I was good at just sitting around holding my baby. My mother-in-law later was like, something about our garden and I said you know I can't go out there and work in the garden and the baby cries and she goes well put her put her in a in the playpen I used to put my kids in the playpen and they'd just be fine while I worked in the garden I go she cries if I put her in the playpen and she's like well just leave her there and I'm like no I'm not gonna leave my baby in the playpen crying so there was definitely a clash of parenting styles yes because attachment parenting was kind of coming up as a possibility but dr spock and you know being rigid with your kids was still the norm
1: Hmm. yeah and how did that like you have so you have three more children and how mm-hmm. did that journey come along did you always know you wanted multiple children or
0: well i only wanted two but i liked my first one so much that I was pretty ready to have another one. And every time we would get to one year when the baby was one year, we'd say, Oh, it'd be kind of nice to have another one. And then we'd have another baby. Mm -hmm. Um, we did that two more times. And then the fourth baby, my body just said, Hey, the baby's a year. It's time to get pregnant. (laughs) Cause we weren't really wanting to have another baby at that point. So that was, um, yeah, I would just get pregnant when the baby was a year, so they're all 22, 23 months apart. And it was it was good. The second time was um, faster, and I barely made it to the birth center.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... did, you, did you choose the same care provider for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, for the three, and then we had moved to um, the Midwest, and there were no the state we were in, Illinois, home birth out of hospital birth was illegal and um or was it illegal I think it's illegal like you would get in trouble only if something bad happened Um, but there were no legal midwives doing out of hospital births Mm -hmm. so we just we were in a uh, cultish church and we just trained ourselves to be our midwives and because people still were doing that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and because we couldn't find anybody and we did our own births so that's how I had my fourth baby
1: is there anything particular you'd like to share from your other three births
0: well it was really lovely to see how once I'd had that really long prodromal labor that I could recognize that I wasn't going to necessarily have the baby, the second baby, the minute I had started have contractions. Mm -hmm. So I just hung out at home. I ate, I fed the baby. Um, I watched a Magnum PI at eight. And at that point I was like, you need to, to my partner, you need to get your mom here. because." These contractions are getting harder. So we, she came and then we drove to Spokane, which was about an hour. And I put my hand on my partner's leg and I said, I'll just squeeze when I have a contraction. And then I just started squeezing more and more often. And he started driving more and more fast. And in those days, there were no cell phones. So we had to pull off the freeway when we got to Spokane. He had to go into a phone booth call their on call person and then we sat in the parking lot of the birth center with me having contractions until somebody finally showed up and that was like at 11 and then I had him just after midnight and that was that was a um, really I I had some back labor that was the first and only time that I really had anybody with me who provided any uh, doula type care and she um put some pressure on my back I think or my legs I don't remember um but she did some things that helped the baby to rotate and for and gave me some physical comfort which was really nice um yeah then he came out and he was a little bit stuck not bad but just I remember looking down at the midwife and her saying very clearly very calmly you need to push the baby out now and I was like oh okay but part of that came from it was midnight and um all the lights were off and so people called each other and I ended up with my mom my aunt a friend from high school and my sister-in-law in the room with me not invited and my mom was I could tell my mom was worried and so I was my body was pushing the baby out, but I was really focused on my mom that she was worried. Her worry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's why the midwife needed to remind me that actually I was having a baby and it was going to require a little bit of extra help from me. And he ended up having a um, either a broken or um, bruised collarbone. We later found um, when we went to, we went to a chiropractor who Was working on his dad and he um said yeah he's out and so did a little bit of baby adjustment and he was he had started to get a cold right away and that that went away so Mm -hmm. that was a little more exciting my third baby I did not invite my mom which hurt her feelings but you know that was I just could not I couldn't be a mom to my baby and a mom to my mom so Mm -hmm. um, I chose to not have her come or anyone else um and that that one was pretty straightforward at this point i think someone told me that the nurse who worked there said uh by the midwife had told her i always have long prodromal labors and then once i get to active labor i have the baby fast I was like well that would have been nice to know i did not know that about myself <laughs> so Now, I knew by the fourth time. And so when the fourth time came around, I had more varicose veins, spent more time with my legs elevated. So I had that really long prodromal labor again. Started on a Friday morning. I didn't have her till early Monday morning. And, but I didn't miss a meal. I didn't miss sleep. I didn't miss church. I didn't miss anything because I just ignored it Mm
1: -hmm. until
0: it was really going Mm -hmm. and then she came out pretty easy because she was all the other kids were nine pounds and she was seven 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 and so she just I would say she just sneezed out
1: (laughs) and this one you're talking about your fourth
0: yes yes Mm -hmm. okay
1: and how was that different for you not having a midwife present and having other women with you
0: it was good it was the first time that I I did have one vaginal exam right when I started to push because we were still under the impression you needed to know if you were 10 centimeters dilated or not. And so mm-hmm. somebody checked me. We did, we called ourselves midwives, yeah. so I did feel like I had care, but the Absolutely. really great thing great thing about it was I didn't do anything I didn't want to do so like I didn't have routine um, cervical checks at the Mm -hmm. end of pregnancy Um, everything was just really straightforward we did our you know I wrote down what my um, clinical assessments were you know how much I weighed what did I measure what was the baby's heart rate it was just it was just lovely She came out nicely and we went and got in bed and went to sleep.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were providing care for each other in sort of the ways that probably our ancestors did many years ago before like the formalization of midwifery care.
0: Yeah. I didn't go to appointments. Yeah. People came by my house and that was nice. That Mm -hmm. was really nice, which definitely um, all of my experiences affected the kind of care I wanted to provide other women I wanted to give women an opportunity to direct their care Yes, and feel in many ways be more of a facilitator clearly I'm the one with uh, who's had the education and has the information but women it's their bodies it's their babies and I want them to feel empowered and in charge of their experience because Mm -hmm. it meant so much to me to do that yes and I think people who have trauma in their lives in their past so I don't really know what what went on for me but I know that I had trauma as a little kid and women who have trauma are often uh, inclined to choose women care for themselves, mm-hmm. and to choose midwives. So it made sense, even what I know psychologically now, why women choose who they choose for care providers, why even though I'd never heard of a midwife, it appealed to me and why I, I chose that, even though it was dramatically different than the culture that I was in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, still, it's about 1% of women give birth at home,
0: yeah it used to be they'd say one percent but it was under one percent and mm-hmm. now it's a little over one percent but it's still rounding um it's still considered one
1: yes and they still talk about like even within that one or one point whatever percent that a mm-hmm. quarter of those births are unplanned mm-hmm. uh, to be at home so yeah that's kind of amazing what um I wonder if you would mind sharing a little bit about your path to midwifery and when you decided that that was something that you wanted to pursue. So in
0: 1985, I think I was a doula before there were doulas to uh, my sister-in-law when she was having her baby at the same place that I had my baby. Um. And that was really nice. Um, I could tell that it helped her. And so I I enjoyed that. And I believe at the time someone from the birth center, because they already knew me, because I'd had my kids there, commented Mm -hmm. on that I had done a good job. Had I considered midwifery or, you know, something to the effect of... Mm -hmm you seem good at this. Maybe you should consider doing it. And, um, I really wanted to support, I really was into the babies at that point because I was had babies. Then as time went on, um, well, so I was one of the group doing the midwifery care in the church we were in. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely, had an interest. We, we trained, we read, we practiced stuff. We had our, you know, our, our sterilized kits that we had, you know, we did Mm -hmm. all of the things that you would do to be considered, um, to consider yourself providing optimal care to people other than we didn't have, we were training each other. And so it, we lacked certain skill sets that Mm -hmm. I decided I needed before I would actually ever call myself a midwife Mm -hmm. beyond that um so we so I just kind of was dabbling in supporting women around birth and it appealed to me I did not ever have support of my partner in that job so once so it would have been in the late 80s I started to get Um, Seattle midwifery school their brochure every year their curriculum and in those days again there was still no internet so it was or not much so they had to send it to me and it was a little booklet and I would get one every year and I would think oh, I want to do this but I would have had to relocate for a couple years my partner was not open to doing that. And I checked, you know, with friends of his that I loved and had a good relationship with. And they also said they wouldn't do that for their partner either. So I was clearly in a bad group of people as far as getting support as a woman to pursue uh, a career. So eventually um, I started working as a doula And uh, I went and took the Penny Simkin course over at Seattle Midwifery School and uh, became a PALS, um, which was a Pacific Association of Labor Support member. I was the only one because I think I was only doula in Spokane at that time. I became a La League leader. So I was doing all of these things that I could locally to um, support my desire to be with women. And eventually a Seattle midwifery school came up with their program that was uh one week on site and the rest of the time you worked at a distance with your uh, just online Mm -hmm. and that's how I got my midwifery training what was your question I'm sorry
1: yeah no you've answered it I asked how sort of your journey into (laughs) midwifery began and um I'd love to hear about your career as a midwife and how you've sort of evolved and over time what your philosophy of care is yeah so in
0: in the 90s i worked as a birth doula and as a midwifery assistant with a number of mentors Uh, and and then i started midwifery school i started midwifery school the very first day was 9 11 and yeah so that was a big deal and then I did two years in one I did all the didactic part of the training in one year and I chose because I already had a lot of clinical experience with my mentors and I had doula clients that were wanting to hire me as their midwife with my mentor as the person who was with me at appointments and with me at the birth Um, I didn't really want to pay the school for the clinical experience that I already was doing and had set up
1: mm-hmm. so
0: there was a there is an I don't know if that's still available I think it is there was a track through um, Washington state licensing that that as long as you had all of this didactic training and you could prove the clinical uh, training as mm-hmm. well um, practicum then you could still get licensed without having a kind of degree a certification through uh, approved mm-hmm. midwifery school which at the time was seattle midwifery school there was like only one approved school yes yeah. so um that's the route that i took to get my midwifery license and i had that and my cpm in 2003 i went to saint lucia and worked there Two thousand and two or three—I don't remember which year—I went there and worked for a few weeks and did like twenty-four births um, to get all the numbers that you need for Washington State. But all of the other than those births, all the other births that I had, I think we needed fifty. Those all were births where I spent all the prenatal time long um, hour long prenatal visits at least uh, long however long they needed with labor and um, their births and then at the same time or their postpartum and at the same time I was going to hospital births with people as their doula so that was that was really good for me because I'd had always had my babies at home. I didn't have any experience with hospital birth really until I started working as birth doula. Mm -hmm. And, oh, my philosophy. So my philosophy about around birth is about education, that it's works best when people know what's happening. That's what I've wanted for myself. Um, I feel like I don't I don't it's fine with me if somebody wants to change I've always said you should change care if you have a provider that you're not clicking with or don't feel good about at some point in labor all the way up until you have the baby. So I feel that that's really important that women have know that they don't have to stay where they are or with who they're initially connected or committed to um having a that midwife client relationship with and um just that birth that pregnancy birth in the postpartum would be an empowering time women have been unempowered around birth since 1950s most women had their babies in the hospital and with that most people had uh at least until the mid 60s were knocked out. So they didn't even experience what birth was. And Mm -hmm. then about that point, they started to really discourage breastfeeding too. And so there was just, I believe people are, I think we see the repercussions of a disconnected culture and the initial connection comes with moms with babies, Not that that can't be um, worked on once the birth has happened, but it's harder. There's all the hormones in place for everything to happen, um, connection to happen when we don't have a whole bunch of drugs involved. Unfortunately, with many moms um, of my mom's era, they didn't feel really connected Mm
1: -hmm. to their
0: kids and my mom was a mom a a daughter of an adopted mom so she her mom wasn't didn't feel connected her mom was knocked out didn't breastfeed so Mm
1: -hmm. she had all
0: of these ways to not to be detached and then so then my mom was also and I feel like with myself and now my children there is a um, opportunity to kind of have do-overs you know and and create connection where disconnection has grown and you know I think we see it across the board in our culture of of just so much separation from one another why we have such a huge need for elder care you know Mm -hmm. out of home
1: elder Mm -hmm. care Yes, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like through your life and experiences and choices, you are, yeah, healing some of that, doing some of that ancestral healing Mm -hmm. and your relationships with your children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Before my mom died, one of the things that just really has always stood out to me is she stood in a doorway and she looked at me and the sun was behind her. And she just said, I want you to know, Tammy, you taught me, you've taught me love And it was like, I always knew that she loved me, but she was able to watch this progression of me have grow babies, have babies, um, nurse babies, and have see the connection that she lacked and probably, you know, and wanted, we all want connection.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So now there's the whole, um, part of psychology segment of psychology offshoot of psychology um i guess not really an offshoot but the uh, pre and perinatal psychology
1: mm-hmm. that
0: is that information is just growing and growing and uh, i put a plug in here for association of pre and perinatal psychology and health it's a it's appa and it's a p p p a h and they have um resources that are free that you can look at as well as you can join and have more access to their uh, information and they talk about so much about how how a woman feels when she's pregnant and her um, relationships with people how that affects the growing baby and even in the newborn time when the baby doesn't have recall it's still affecting the baby Mm -hmm. and i i know that in my lifetime um like when my my mom was a teacher and she was they were still being or thinking that it was uh nature over nurture you know that it you were a blank slate when you were born and then whatever was put into you as who you were going to be. And we know that's Mm -hmm. not the case now. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'll be sure to include in the show notes that website that you just spoke about. Okay. Great. Um, And at what point did you, I know you also had a natural grocery store for 25 years. Mm -hmm. When, I don't actually know the details of when in your life that came to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, I've always been an entrepreneur, even when I was a little kid, like I would, I had cooking classes, I, you know, I was always looking for a way to make a buck, and always had lots of ideas. So when my kids were little, little, um, even before some of them were born, there were food buying clubs, where you and we lived in the country. And we would get together as groups of women, and we would go through a catalog of which in those days was like uh, Mountain Peoples, which became UNFI, um, which would be more like an Azure catalog that's currently um, around in this area. Uh, And so we would sit and we would go like, I want 10 pounds of whole wheat flour. And somebody else would go, well, I'll take five pounds. And we had to get rid of 50 pounds. And Mm -hmm. so we would just go through and split stuff up um, so we could buy in bulk. And then we would order, it would, we'd place the order, we'd give our money, and then it would get delivered to somebody's house, and it would get split up, and people would come by and pick it up. And when I came back to that same, so we had joined this church, dr- moved around a bunch, and then we came back to our farm. And at that point, everybody gone to work, all the women had, and there were no more food buying clubs, and I still wanted that food to feed my kids. So I just figured out a way how to be be the food buying club and uh with a little bit of a markup and we sold raw milk so i would just get this in every couple weeks um computers started to come out so i had a dot matrix printer and i would print off my inventory and then i would deliver it to people and deliver the food to people so Lydia my youngest was two and we started to get these orders in and this giant truck would show up in our farmyard and unload stuff for us and super cool they were really like the driver this one driver we had only for years he He made our youngest his beneficiary on his life insurance because he didn't have kids and he took us to concerts like we had these relationships that were super sweet from that experience of doing this crazy stuff out of our house. And then um, I noticed when people would come out to the farm to pick up some stuff, they would see what inventory I had on hand because I Mm -hmm. didn't always sell out a whole case of something. And so they buy more. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, if we had a storefront, they Uh could see what there was. And then I was like, okay, I could do that. And then if there was a deli, they would eat the food and they would go, it's so good. So then they would have to buy the stuff to make it out of the store. So we had this tiny little store with a deli in it um yeah so started in 1989 and after a couple years at home we moved into a little storefront and then we moved to a bigger storefront by the freeway and then people would come to that store and go why aren't you in Spokane we wish you would be in Spokane people we made cookies and pizza and burgers and um people would stop in buy cookies on their way on a trip and they'd be really disappointed if we didn't have the cookies they wanted and they'd be like be in Spokane so (sighs) then we started looking for a property place in Spokane which is what the building we ended up buying on 5th and Thor and um, we had two locations for a little while and then that was just Clearly, the Spokane store was going to do way better than the Ritzville store.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so we closed the Ritzville one and just had the Spokane store. And that happened sometime in the 90s. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So
1: you've had so many creations in your life. It's yes. so beautiful.
0: Well, then I used it to move to the beach because my mother died of brain cancer and I was just super busy with midwifery practice and I felt very overwhelmed. And so really retail stores shouldn't be like um, that fluid. So, you know, we picked it up and we moved it over there, made it smaller and all that. But with the downturn in the economy, it was just, it it got by, which is all it really was supposed to do. But a whole bunch of other things happened. And it was just after eight years time to move back to Spokane. So we moved back and... Mm -hmm now the store building is a bar restaurant so that works
1: yes Uh, we have so many transitions in life and it's kind of amazing how they just keep on coming and we I find myself like thinking I made one transition and into this role that I anticipate sometimes is going to last longer than it does and then life shifts again yeah Mm -hmm. yeah And it's
0: good. It's good to be um, willing to change.
1: Yes. I know that you've spoken a little bit about in during your time supporting women through Mm -hmm. pregnancy and motherhood and being that strong, supportive person alongside them and that you've gotten to had the opportunity to witness uh, what that transition is for many women and how sometimes it's a portal into like a greater life change Mm -hmm. um I wonder if you could share a little bit about that
0: yes I think that is so huge um I don't know what most women's experience is but I definitely didn't really enjoy though girl-to-girl relationships for the most part through high school and so when I started so I started to work um, with women having babies particularly focusing on the babies I think I said that earlier Mm -hmm. and then I reached a point where it became I was in love with the women that I was working with the babies are great I love babies but the women are what my purpose is for. And I mean, even today, as I will sit and work on, you know, what is my purpose? Here I am, I'm finishing my 60th year. What is this next season bringing? What is my purpose? And it is always the women. The women are who I want to support, whether it's if I'm choosing to help with a nonprofit, it's always, you know, the the babies and the families benefit from where the women are, but the women are my focus. The mm-hmm. women will take care of their babies and their families. I don't feel that as my mission or purpose. And um, let's try to think where I went from there. So at that point, I realized that women who I hadn't liked that much earlier on in my life, um, when they have a baby, they open up and they open up in a way that oftentimes they've never opened before. And at that point, I have an opportunity to be in their lives. And then a lot of times after they have the baby, they close back up again, they're they're not ready to, to stay open in that space. But I'm still in there and that gives me an opportunity to still be available to them, to support them, um, kind of forever, you know? Um, I have friends, so I started with midwifery where the women I worked with were more my peers. And then I became more the age of their sister, maybe their mother, and now I'm a grandma, And it's been really interesting to have, I have friends of all ages for that reason that I got to be in that space and be in people, you know, be in their hearts, them in my heart. And uh, we care about one another. So it's been really interesting as the peer group who I helped have babies have been coming into their 50s and Mm -hmm. are starting, or 60s, and starting to um, enjoy this last season of life and so uh, I get to be supportive of people from menses through menopause and that is a very lovely thing very very much an honor to be in women's life in mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm so That's- I feel like I missed the end of your question. What was your That's question? Okay.
1: I don't exactly remember at this point. <laughs> I'm like, I but, went off. <laughs> but you have me thinking about, you know, you've just you've imparted so much wisdom to me during our journey of like being your um client and being a friend. And I have just felt so um, nourished and guided and empowered, you know, by you helping me to like recognize the power that I do have of myself and also recognizing, you know, learning to place boundaries and to just be more into my own person. Mm Um, in separate in some ways, like separating from like my parents, like my parents were aren't weren't comfortable with home birth either. And like things like that, mm-hmm. but embracing it and you acknowledging that it's, you know, uh, if it feels like the right path to me, then it is a right and good path. If That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you have me thinking, wondering, as you've transitioned into this crone menopause era of your life, if you have any reflections at this point in your life from your different journeys through these different stages.
0: Can we take a pause here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So I as far as transitioning in going through menopause, menopause was a really interesting experience for me and i guess i first off want to just say that i'm sad i've been sad a lot about women's issues over the years because it's like we called having our periods the curse and we you know i when i started having my period i didn't want to pay attention to it. i wanted to pretend like it didn't happen and that changed once I had kids and I wanted to see my blood and I wanted to know what was going on. And I wanted my kids to not feel weird about it. Like I couldn't talk with my mom about that. Um, It wasn't considered anything you talked about. It was always hush, hush. And, um, and just so uncomfortable about being a woman. There was nothing about it that was, lauded as it should be
1: yeah we haven't been celebrated yeah yeah yeah
0: so it's it was just always a negative and then having babies same kind of thing when I was have having babies there was in my family anyway so much negativity about being pregnant and the experience and birth was icky and you know there was just very little joy everybody was bottle fed I was the first person to breastfeed in our my extended family had cousins after me, cousin who did, but I was the oldest grandkid. And so for several generations, there'd been no real breastfeeding. And so then come around to menopause and I have no idea when it's going to happen because all of the women in my family, even my younger cousin have all had hysterectomies. So I had no idea what timing to even expect. And I had a lot of stress when my mom was sick. And I was so busy with the store and midwifery and my own personal issues around my relation, primary relationship. And I thought I was going, maybe going through early menopause, but then I went to acupuncture and with some herbs from the acupuncturist and regular acupuncture and massage, my period returned to more normal timing. It wasn't uh, weird bleeding. Um, it just, you know, was a normal more 28 days? few days of bleeding and that went on into my 50s and in my early 50s I had a point I came to a point where I had just um stopped bleeding monthly and so I got to six months and I had a party like I'm halfway there you know it was super awesome people came we had a good time and then my period started the next month And then it did that for a while. And then I did this, another started to have another six, basically six months of no bleeding. And at that point I was like, okay, this is really it. And then I bled again. And I was like, who the hell cares at this point? It's never, it'll happen when it happens. So I actually have no idea when, when I went through menopause because I wasn't paying any attention. I no longer charted it. I did not, I just ignored it. So Somewhere in my 50s, I went through menopause. And I had a, a couple years, at maybe at the most, where I had a, hot flashes. And um, I just wore a lot of tank tops and hoodies. And I just would strip down if I was hot and put the sweatshirt back on if I was cold. And I considered it an interesting experiment. Took herbs to help <clears throat> with any weird bleeding Excuse me. (laughs) And I had some times where I had more flooding kind of bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so I would drink a pregnancy tea. I would just drink a quart of it all at once. And that would always take care of it. And I took herbs on a regular basis, uh, just to support Going through menopause, just herbs that are supportive to women. And yeah, it just was, I thought, super interesting and fascinating. Now, I believe a lot of um, some people have really debilitating symptoms. I did not have that. But a lot of people just feel bad about it because we've been taught that's kind of the end of your self as a woman. <laughs> like, you're going to be dry your tissues are going to be thin. You know, it's just like, you're just going to be an old dried up thing. And I did not find that to be the case. I actually found that I was more sensual and sexual and um, excited about life having gone through that because for one thing, you can't get pregnant anymore. That's super exciting. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry about, do I have pads or tampons with me? Cause my period might start. Um, you just, you, you still cycle, you still have feelings. Like I can tell when I would, when it would normally be my period time or my ovulation Mm -hmm. time, just about how I feel in my body. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not so intense and it's just a super exciting period of time. So I'm sad when women or when I hear the culture at large speak negatively about, this time in women's life where I hear women I read women write, or hear women talk about oh you know that's gonna happen and they're not looking forward to it and and I just I want to spread the message that it's such a great opportunity to have a new season of life you don't know, generally don't have little kids anymore and you um can do you're, you're just more free
1: Mm-hmm. I love that you're bringing up the sort of reframe of this transition. And I feel like, yeah, in our culture right now, we do this to most of the women transitions. Like you said, when people first start bleeding, there's also, you called it the curse growing up. And um, I wonder if you, with your own girls, have sort of reframed it for them or honored it in a different new way than you had it honored for yourself, these that transition into bleeding
0: i didn't do any uh, particular party event honoring kind of thing which i in hindsight would have liked to have done um, i think that we don't have enough traditions around these changes these transitions for women I would like to be a part of that if my granddaughters, if my daughters decide to do that for their granddaughters, I think that that would be a really lovely thing. And maybe, you know, even as we're talking, maybe it's something that I can know when it happens, even if they don't do any celebration that, but I could take them and do something special, have some sort of outing that's special Mm
1: -hmm. just
0: for them to honor that this is a really lovely thing that has happened Um, I've talked to somebody um, whose daughter started their period in and I said well congratulations and clearly the mother didn't think that it was congratulatory discussion (laughs) so I'm like you know tell her congratulations that's so awesome and it was like what's wrong with you (laughs) but but I do feel that it is a really all of the transitions should be honored and be an exciting thing because we're women. we it's not the same all the time. And so it's, I love change. And so to change to a new time of life where you can do different things than you've been doing, you can look at things differently. I guess it's, I love it. So.
1: Absolutely. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, before we close, I would love to, um, give you some space to talk about your offerings right now to the community. You're a midwife, you're a craniosacral practitioner, you have herbs for, you have tea and vaginal steam herbs and more. And I wonder if you would like to share about that.
0: Sure. Um, with COVID there's been definitely less of that, um, focus for me. Um, also just a time of life for whatever reason, as this season is changing for me, um, I've really spent the last year just, and COVID has made it really possible to do where I've just really focused on, what do I want this next season to be but I do still offer midwifery care I always laugh when someone finds me because I don't advertise and I just say hey well if you find me awesome (laughs) then I'm happy to be your midwife so yeah I still do offer midwifery care Um, and uh, I probably my biggest focus is tea. And I'm working, I've just about finished up some new uh, logos and uh, just going to do a look at some different marketing than previously and really kind of uh, put my energy towards that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it, it embodies so much of what's important to me. It's supporting women and the teas not only support women, but it supports their families. Um, it also gives me the opportunity to do education with women, which is important to me. Um, I make myself available with phone consults or emails or texts to talk about the different, what different herbs do for you. Um, why the tea blend has what it has. Um, yeah, so. That's kind of my major focus right now. And so you should be seeing more of that um, promoted out there.
1: Wonderful. I know I have enjoyed your teas during pregnancy and postpartum and gifted them to friends and also used your vaginal steam herbs. And I really find that to be a beautiful ritual and practice too. I love that you incorporated that into part of your midwifery care that you um, you know, that the tea to drink was part mm-hmm. of the care, as well as the vaginal steam herbs. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really beautiful and unique.
0: And the pregnancy tea is something that we used to sell in our store, make and sell in our store. And it so I think it's I have probably sold it for 25 years. Um It is so great for, um, I just, I feel like it helps women, the herbs in it help women build their blood. So drinking it during pregnancy is great for anybody who would be prone towards anemia. But it also seems to just really help recuperation postpartum if a person has been drinking it. All those vitamins and minerals that are um, concentrated in the dried herbs um, and drinking it through labor and postpartum, I've had people call me and say, uh, who've had babies before say, what's wrong with me? I'm not bleeding enough. And I'm like, no, actually that's really a good thing. You know, you don't have to, um, use that energy of, to, to create more blood, um, if you, if you don't bleed more, that's actually not a bad thing. So you can um, enjoy this, this, the benefits of drinking the tea for just blood building and recuperation, recovery, mm-hmm. postpartum. And it also has herbs that are good in supporting breastfeeding too. So even though I do a lactation tea, the pregnancy tea also has things that support breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And then I found it so useful during menopause because I just feel like it helps or anybody who has heavy bleeding with their period. Uh, If you drink a quart of it at once, I always had really great results to slow bleeding that I thought was heavier than I wanted for myself. And other people have reported the same. And I've even had somebody who started giving it to their teenage son. And they felt like hormonally, their kid was um being supported and nicer to be around wow i know that was really weird but um i've always had such good reports from people who've used the tea from the get-go even before i was using it in my practice and just sold it in our store people always um gave really good reports about it so Mm -hmm. i really haven't altered the the combination much over the years and It just continues to, it's nourishing and, you know, that's bottom line.
1: It is. I love how it's like the sort of common thread too, because it's for, you know, pregnancy and menstruation and menopause and it has a nutrition component. And I think that's really beautiful. And I'm also remembering that I wanted to ask you about your experience with birth outside of the U S and how maybe that compares or how they were similar or different, how birth um, is witnessed or care, how women are cared for through birth in, the, in America compared to other places you've been? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, I went to St. Lucia in the early 2000s and worked there at a hospital. They don't do out of hospital birth generally. If there was, I'm sure somebody is, but there was no discussion of anybody doing that in the area and there women saw somebody for prenatal care and it was usually a doctor and then um they would come to the hospital and labor and the midwives provided their care unless there was something serious that came up that um, needed a, a doc ob to come in um and that was really interesting because this was a country that had gotten u.s support like 30 years prior. And so they had done some, um, infrastructure building, uh, buildings and things with this aid from the U S but then the aid dried up. And so they were kind of just like stopped at that point from really, um, growing, uh, roads and their, their uh, buildings were literally stopped in construction. And so, our hospital in the midwifery or the OB area was like 30 year old hospital beds from the US. And there were, so they were the plasticky vinyl stuff. And mm-hmm. they had, re- you know, really thin sheets so that would throw over it. But, you know, when you're in labor, it would move around. And so, you're pretty much having the baby on this vinyl stuff. And, you know, they had an ultra or a Doppler was a fetal monitor, wasn't a Doppler. And they would just, if they were going to listen to the baby, they would roll that big Hummer around to the different rooms. And we brought Dopplers as gifts to use, and they would just keep them locked up because they weren't used to using them. They were just used to this big honking fetal monitor that we would move around. So it was... um, very interesting as far as the uh, way they went about doing birth we set up a a little table beside the women giving birth and we always stood in exactly the same place and we did our hands exactly the same way and it was really good for me to see because I was like oh now I get doctors why because I'd been going as a doula to the hospital birth and you know honestly, having a bad attitude, personally, like, oh, do they always have to do that? You know, like, why do they always set their tray up like that? And why won't they let the mom move around? Well, because it's easier. You know, and when the mom is just staying in one spot, and you are always standing in the exact same spot, your muscle memory is just you just do the same thing over and over again. And so it gave me some compassion for people I hadn't had compassion necessarily for of the care providers and what they were used to doing and why they chose to do it that way um the women had lovely labors and in spite of conditions that I would consider not desirable you know a vinyl hospital bed and
1: mm-hmm. did they have their own room or was it multiple women in a room or? there were
0: a couple rooms that could have multiple people, but generally they were in their own room. They all got enemas, hot, high and soapy. And I'd never done enemas before. So that was, that was new for me. Um, And then again, so why do, you know, we, my age group, we were like writing our birth plans and saying no enemas, you know, no shaves. You guys don't have to, haven't had to deal with that, but that was what was routinely done in the u.s and so again they're 30 years you know they're doing what we did here 30 years ago still there and so they were doing these enemas but what you found was a mom who'd had babies before if she got a high hot soapy enema she'd have that baby really quick after she had had it because What does it do? It moves all the stool out of the way and the baby drops down and is born. So I was like, oh, okay, I get that now. Um, I still don't think people need to have that, but it is, um, I get the reason. And so it just gave me, in those years, I was still really pretty judgmental about things I thought were right and other people were doing wrong. I have changed a lot over the last years with that. Um, But what I did really note is just how easily the women had babies, just so much more easily. They walk everywhere. Um, They just had very little problems. Rarely did we need to call the OB. They just had their babies easily. And um, I worked in Haiti in the In like 2011, and uh, at a birth center there, same thing. These women are walking a whole lot. They're walking a long ways to come to the birth center. Maybe they're riding a motorcycle, um, or riding in the back of a—I don't even remember what they call those—where there's just a whole bunch of people. We probably they call it a bus, but it's like a truck with the seats in the back. You know, so they're being jolted along, and they're coming there for their appointments and then coming when they're in labor and they just have their babies so easily and we don't we don't have our babies with the same ease that um, these women in other countries often do what would countries we would call developing countries countries that we that don't have all the dice things that we have Um, yes they need more um, more hospital, um, access like in Haiti where they can get what they need if there is an emergency, but just, Mm -hmm. they generally, um, just have their babies easier. And then I was,
1: Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it sounds like they don't do as many like standard interventions then or different ones.
0: They don't other than like at the, ho- that one hot first hospital mm-hmm. with the enema, but no, they're hardly listening to heart tones. I mean, at the birth center in Haiti, it's the people there have been trained in the similar, um, way that we have in the U S as far sure. as midwifery goes, listening to heart tones on a regular basis, that kind of thing.
1: IVs and things like that. or Only
0: if necessary, you know, if somebody was bleeding too much or there was some issue that they needed uh, or they needed it because they're going to transport to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, there in Haiti, if the woman goes into the hospital, if she doesn't have money, she's, she has to stay there until her family comes up with money. And her family is going to have to feed her and take care of s- washing and you know uh, wow. laundry and stuff too. And that was the way at the birth center, Uh, the families after the birth someone was designated to do the woman's laundry that she had from her bedding and clothes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in Colombia and I didn't uh, their home birth is illegal in Cali where we were and I think all of Colombia. There were a lot of people who had due to Drug cartels and um, mining issues, who have moved from the coast into these large cities and in were very poor areas of town, um, and so there was still an understanding or a real belief that midwifery was um, very. They honored that position. They honored that role a lot, but they can't, can't have their babies that way there. But they do still have old, um, the traditional midwives on the coast. So uh, potentially, uh, I have not followed through on it, but there was the opportunity to go with a photo, uh, a vid- videographer. He, um, he does a whole lot with, I'm not sure multiple media things um but he does movies and he wanted to go there and interview the midwives and he invited me to come and i think that would i would love to do something like that
1: yes that would be incredible
0: and i when i was in columbia one of the things that so we went around the room and we were inter um introduced and to these um so I went with college, went with Gonzaga down there, and we went to help these uh, three different groups who were um, community supporting groups within these uh, communities that of people who had basically immigrated from the coast in and who were um, living in pretty impoverished conditions as far as uh, finances that jobs that they had homes that they were living in in that and we went around and we were introduced and because we had translators I could watch their faces and you know there were people there were a lot of people who were like CEOs and you know all of these things people who were being introduced and they know they were all they were great but when they got to me and they introduced I introduced myself as a midwife they lit up you know they were like oh, they were just so excited and they brought me gifts during my time there. And I realized how, um, lack, the lack of honor of midwifery in the United States versus, um, somewhere else in the world. Um, you don't realize how much, even if you're working as a midwife, you take that lack of honor on yourself. And it was very humbling and, uh, really made my heart glad to have them um, I, it just made me go oh okay I get it I get it it's not <laughs> the role of midwife is something that's uh, kind of universal global but is seen in different ways in different places and mm. it touched my heart
1: yes I'm so glad that you had that experience I know you have been just I am um, i can't even express how grateful I am for you and your support, especially through the birth and death of my baby Hartley, you know, you standing alongside me and being present and holding space and witnessing. It was an, it was, an honor to be there with you, truly. Well, it was an honor to have you there, be present and... know know that I could do it and to hold me after and I will never forget and I will always be with me Mm. I will forever be grateful for you thank you um and I will yes I'm going to be telling Hartley's birth story in another episode and so if you're wondering who I'm talking about what I'm talking about Tammy this wonderful beautiful motherly midwife that I had you are it Tammy is the midwife and so I'll link it back to this episode as well nice I'll look
0: forward to to watching that
1: yeah um and I will include some notes in the episode episode notes how to get a hold of Tammy's a magical amazing specialty unique blend teas and herbs and Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom and stories today. Is there anything else that is stirring your soul in this moment that you feel like you would like to share before we end?
0: I don't think so. I feel like I have said a lot. Um, Just that I'm, I am, I am grateful to be a woman and I couldn't always say that in my early years. And I really I am and it it only grows. So I hope for all women listening that they feel encouraged that they can just grow to love themselves and themselves as women more and more just as the years go on.
1: Mm. Yes. Love, love, love. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you found value in today's stories, I would love for you to share them with someone you know, write a review on iTunes or make a comment on YouTube. I am an in-person and online birth mentor, postpartum doula and mothering mentor. I love providing sistership support to women along their journey of maiden into motherhood. Pregnancy, birth and motherhood are always transformational experiences unique to each woman and baby. I believe this transition provides a natural unearthing of every woman's inner creatress. My passion is to nurture women through caring conversations, rituals, and individualized mentorship so that they can enter motherhood feeling confident, inspired, and in tune with their needs as well as the needs of their baby. I provide unique, individualized grief support for mothers that have, like myself, experienced the death of their wombling or baby. I believe there is more that unites us than divides us. Birth and death are always a part of our human experience. My hope is for these soulful, heartfelt stories to remind you what it means to be wild, human, and alive so that you may cherish your unique journey of human and that you may find the courage to share your voice and express the words you feel deep in your heart and soul. Be brave, be bold, be love, be you.